Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is where we have an open discussion on biblical questions where you and the audience can participate. And I want to emphasize that uh, as we do discuss your questions, we default to uh, what the Bible has to say on the matter. Um, if you're wa- Whichever way you're watching the show today, uh, whether on the Facebook page or the uh, Zoom app, we want to hear from you, so please ask your questions. On the Zoom app, use the Q&A window, and then on the, um, the Facebook page, just, uh, page, just make your comments in the regular way on the comment boxes. Um, our, our panelists are uh, Scott from Gettysburg. Hi, Scott. Hello, Drew. How are you doing today? Doing good, thank you. Jeff from Exton, PA. Hi, Jeff. Hello, everybody. And Noah is our webcast engineer, helping out with your questions and comments. Hi, Noah. Hello. And I'm Drew, your host from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And again, welcome, everybody. And I do want to stress, just send in your questions. And In fact, your questions don't have to be on the very things we're discussing right now uh, on any subject in the Bible. Just pop them in. Um, so what was our first thing we're going to do? Oh, so here it is. We have this open question that we want to ask. I don't know if we have um, any atheists in the audience. We're, we, we want to invite everyone to come in and join the discussion. So the question I do want to ask is, because um, there's always been this discussion about morality, is it that if, if, if you're an atheist and um, you, uh, if you can give us a description of Defining morality, more importantly, where does morality come from? Um, so we'd like to hear from you if you can uh, give us some response on that and have a dialogue on it and um, we'll see what we can understand about that. Okay, I think that, that's the open question. Uh, where are we going from here, guys? That's a good question. I'd, I would really like to have somebody who does not believe that the Bible defines morality. I would really like for somebody to send us a comment or question. Tell us, you know, what basis they have for asserting that something is good and something else is evil. Good. And any other questions? Uh, this is, uh, we're, we're looking for audience involvement. So anytime you have a question, whether it's about something we're already talking about, or something that you've been thinking about or studying that you would like to have it addressed on the program, uh, please just uh, send in your questions, and uh, we'll uh, get to those uh, as many as we have time for as the program goes on. Sometimes, depending on our schedule, they get uh, left for a later program, but we'd, uh, we've got time to get some of your questions today, and we hope to hear from you. Let's start off with this segment. We're going to be doing a new segment uh, What's a favorite Bible verse? Um, I'm not saying what's your favorite Bible verse, because that would limit it to one. And most of us have lots of favorites. uh, And different passages mean even greater things to us at different times in life or that we're thinking about or been studying with us. So we're going to start off today. Drew, what is a favorite text of yours and why? Um, Yeah, I like the way you said that it changes over time, right? Depending on what, what we're studying and working on. But what, right now, it's been for a little while now too, is my favorite one is uh, found in 1 Corinthians 15, in the, specifically verse 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 15. And the reason I like this verse, and we'll read it in a second, is because it really talks about and hits at the point of the, the cornerstone 
the foundation of Christianity itself. <laughs> Paul is saying, well, let me just read his verse first. In verse 15, he says, we are even found <coughs> representing God. Well, let me back up. 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. I think Paul's saying is that if, if Christ is not raised, then I'm a liar. Yeah. You can't believe a thing I'm saying. Because that, he says, I'm misrepresenting God because I'm testifying to you about it. So that tells me something. That tells me that, well, first of all, it tells me that there's actual Christians who are saying there is no such thing as a resurrection. And I never looked at it that way until I looked at it again at verse 12. It says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, he's talking to Christians, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I find that profound. And there's a number of reasons or possibilities as to why they may be thinking that or saying that, well, there's really no resurrection of the dead. Obviously, there were some false teachers trying to promote that. Yeah. Well, if they're promoting it, that means people are accepting it. Now, why would they be so easy to accept it if they're Christians? Um, I think it comes, part of that has to do with that, you know, resurrection from the dead. They believed maybe in a resurrection off in the distant future for everybody, but here it's talking about a physical reversal of death. Yeah. We all know that's impossible. You can't reverse death. And so somehow they're getting that mixed in. Well, maybe a Christ was raised, but well, maybe he wasn't. You can't do that. Or whether he was or not, it probably can't include me either. So he's, he's, Paul is going through this argument that if he was not raised from the dead, then I'm a liar. And what I am really impressed is that in the first few verses of the chapter, up through 1 through 10 and so, he gives a litany of evidence. People who saw him. In fact, he says over 500 on one day. That's not to mention the other 39 days that Christ walked on the earth. How many other hundreds saw him? So there were a lot of people who were evident, who were witnesses to this and provide evidence. So it's not a blind faith. Even 2,000 years later, there is evidence, not only here in the scriptures, but also in there's evidence in, in the events that happened in the first century and from secular history that you put it all together, Christ was raised from the dead. And the bottom line, if he wasn't, I would just close the book up. I know we've got a lot to talk about today, but this is really worth talking about for just a minute, if if, if you guys will, uh, don't mind. Yeah, no, I will. Go right ahead. You know, as I read 1 Corinthians 15, I get the impression that the the mindset Paul is addressing is not so much focused on Jesus' resurrection from the dead as it is just upon our resurrection from the dead, whether or not that's a uh, realistic thing to expect. And you're right, Drew, uh, making a distinction between a belief in um, a spiritual realm or some kind of existence and, on the other hand, an actual resurrection from the dead. The, the Greek world, Corinth was a Greek city, the Greek world believed in some kind of spirit existence or some things from the, from the other world, that kind of thing, an afterlife. But what they did not believe in 
was that an individual who was dead could bodily come back to life in his body. And exactly. And and there were there were Christians, obviously at Corinth, who were doubting that that was something they should expect. And so Paul's argument seems to be, if you cannot believe in the concept of resurrection from the dead, then you can't believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then I'm a false witness. I'm a liar. Our faith is meaningless. Christ isn't who he claimed to be, all of that. Now, this is interesting um, because it is it is not unusual today to find even among believers a kind of a very nebulous idea about what we should expect in terms of resurrection. You'll find believers who have the idea you just die and then you're with the Lord and everything's good. And I'm not denying that somebody who is in the faith and dies is with the Lord. And I'm not denying that everything is good. But what I'm saying is the Bible teaches there is something to be conquered, death. And that is conquered at the last day when Jesus comes back. There is a resurrection from the dead to which we hope to attain, to which the Apostle Paul hoped to attain in Philippians, the third chapter. And um, there has even come to be a doctrine being taught. It's known as it's known as the 70 AD doctrine. It's known as realized eschatology. It's known by several names. But there are, are people who are teaching now that there is no actual resurrection from the dead. Um, it's not going to happen, they say. And, and, you know, you have Paul referring to some who said the resurrection was past already. And I think there's a common idea amongst those in modern times who are saying there's no resurrection and those in the first century. And that is the idea that the only resurrection that Christians really should expect is kind of a spiritual renewal when they become Christians. And, uh, and, and then they have some kind of confidence of existence beyond this life. Yeah. The, the, the Greeks believed in afterlife, but they rejected the idea of the body being resurrected. Uh, now, and I'm going to, let me just go ahead and do this first. Let me share this screen. And it is important because there's, there's a lot of brethren now doing the same thing. Yeah. And first Corinthians 15 is one of the most important chapters. You're going to read about, there are passages where I think there's room for debate. Is that talking about 70 AD or is that talking about the, the end? Sure. Uh, for instance, let's say without getting into which it might be, when the Tower of Siloam fell and, and some people had been killed by Pilate and stuff, and Jesus says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Is it conceivable that he's talking about the at the end of time judgment? Yes. <laughs> Is it conceivable he's talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD? Yes. Uh, and whichever you think it might be, you can see why there'd be at least room for discussion on passage <coughs> Which is this? There's a lot of people that are saying that there's nothing in the Bible about a future resurrection. Everything was 70 AD. And 1 Corinthians 15 just absolutely refutes that. And it's a repetition of an old problem. Uh, let me throw up a couple of charts here. Can, it, can everybody see the 1 Corinthians 15 thing on your screen right now? Yes. Yeah. All right. 
So let's get past that. If my computer will work, oh, and what a time for my computer to quit working. All right, <laughs> there we go. Greek background of 1 Corinthians 15. The Greek idea of body and soul. Um, and this is from philosophyreligion.org, etc. Appearing in Greek thought is a sharp distinction between the body and the soul. The soul is regarded as pure, holy, immortal. The body is evil, earthly, corruptible. Man's existence on earth is a living death during which the soul is trapped in the body. The 6th century BC Greek philosopher taught the soul can be <coughs> bodily defects in order to escape from the physical and return to the realm of pure spirit. In Platonic tradition, the body is regarded as a prison of the soul. Uh, and I've seen sometime years ago a statue, and it's, it's a guy taking off a shirt, and it's the idea of the soul taking off the body. Oh, great, rid of that body. But you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, we're not looking to be unclothed, but to be clothed upon. Right. Um, and consider Mars Hill. They said, we want to hear what this fellow's saying. Is this something you think? We want to hear this. And they listened to him until he said what? The resurrection. Until he, uh, oh, no. Uh, you said in Acts 17, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the resurrection. Yeah. They, and until that word, they listened. But when they heard resurrection, they began to mock. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, in addition with the problem of the I'm after this teacher, I'm after this teacher, I'm after this teacher, there's all these references to Greek philosophy. Paul said, I didn't come in with philosophy and stuff, and he's warning them about that. In addition to the distinctions uh, referred to there, there's apparently also some local teachers who are really promoting some Greek philosophy. And so he keeps hitting on that. And then look at this. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Remember later in this very chapter, it's going to say, um, if the dead are not raised, let us what? Drink and be merry, for tomorrow yeah. we die. Yeah. Well, there were different schools of philosophical thought, and one was the Epicureans. And what is the motto of the Epicureans? Uh, oh, yeah, their motto, this is in a textbook that I've got, but I don't have up on the screen. Their motto was, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So Paul's kind of making a jab there. You know, if there isn't a resurrection, he's saying first, look, you guys that are saying there's no resurrection, realize if that's the case, you've just thrown out the resurrection of Christ. And if he's not risen, you're still in your sins. But he concludes that by saying, but Jesus was raised. He starts the chapter saying, let me remind you now what I taught you and what you believed in, what there's plenty of witnesses who saw, Jesus was raised from the dead. So why on earth are you saying there's not going to be a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, he wasn't raised either. But he was raised, and so we shall be. And then in verse 33, here's what I'm looking for. He said, be not deceived, evil companions corrupt good morals. That's what's on your screen right there. That was said by Menander. And it was a saying I've heard was learned by Greek school children. So, you know, evil companions corrupt good morals. Paul's saying here, you've been listening to these philosophically uh, tainted teachers and influences, and they're corrupting you, and you need to stop doing that. Man, I didn't know you were going to bring out the slides and add all of that. That's fantastic. Man, There's the tomorrow we die. Here's another phrase received as an unconscious setting by culture at large. As school children, 
We learned in world history about the Epicureans who lived up to the motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul's making allusions to these uh-huh. philosophies. Did you say something there, Jeff? No, I just say that's good. That's connecting the Paul's statement there in 1 Corinthians 15 with uh, some of this philosophy that prevailed in that society. So that's why that's my favorite verse right now. You guys added a little bit more information there. It's going to make it my favorite one for a little longer. So if we ask you next week, what's your favorite verse? Is going to be the same one? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so next week we'll ask somebody else. <laughs> next week we'll ask one of you guys. All right. All right, that was good. Anything else on that before we move forward? Any questions come in from the audience? I don't see anything in yet. No, let us know. If anybody has a comment or question, please uh, uh, use the chat window from uh, BibleQuest.tv. Uh, or if you're on a Facebook page, are we live on Facebook today? Yes, we are. At whose page? On uh, Stephen's page. I checked it and it's not there unless Uh-oh. it is by now. I don't know. I thought Noah was able to connect through it. Let Noah follow up on that and see if it's there. All right. Um, okay, now we're going to go to a question that did come in from the audience. Um, and this is in regards to uh, Romans 8, 29, and 30. Uh, one of you guys, I'm not there right now. Let's see who gets there first. Well, let, let's, let's start maybe back up just a little bit. We, sure. You know, we get back way back up, but I'm just going to start back to verse 28 where he says, and we know that to them that love God, this is Romans 8, 28, reading down through verse 30. And we know to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. I just want to make note of the idea that Paul has in mind a purpose that God had. And that purpose included a calling um, of people in Christ Jesus. And then verse 29, he says, for whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he foreordained to them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. It's a powerful passage, and there's a lot in it. The, the, one of the things I just want to make quick distinction between, maybe one of you guys can illustrate this real quickly, but I'd like to make the point that there's a distinction between foreknowing and foreordaining, and God does both. Yeah. Uh, you want to illustrate that, one of you guys? Oh, I think I remember this illustration. You did it for us a while back. I, li- I liked it. So I'll... Uh, Tell me if I do it right. Okay. I didn't remember I did it, but I thought you probably oh. had a good illustration better than mine. <laughs> mine, mine might not work on this screen, but go ahead. Um, I can't remember. You held up a pen, and then okay. what did you do? Remind me what you did. Well, you, you need to have the table in view on your camera. Let me do it, let me do it this way so, right. I, can, so I can – my desk is so cluttered up with junk right now, you wouldn't believe it. It looks neat. You're looking at right here, and you can't see all the mess. <laughs> But right below this level is just just papers piled everywhere. <laughs> it's just a mess. But I'm going to take this right here, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get one that's yellow. It'll show up a little yellow and blue. It's got some yellow on there. So I, I'm going to take this, and, and here it is in my finger. Now, there's not a lot of distance of travel here, but maybe there's enough, and maybe our cameras are good enough it'll work. I'm going to let go of this pen, and when you all saw that 
pin drop out of my finger, you knew it was going to hit this surface, right? You knew that. I knew it before you were going to drop it. You, well, yes, you knew it. But, you, but when I dropped it, you knew it was going to hit that surface. Oh, right at that point in midair, I knew it was going to hit did the surface. You, did you cause it to happen? No. So you could know something in advance without causing it. Okay. Now, we being feeble humans can't know a whole lot without causing it. <laughs> but we, we can know some things without causing it. We know something's going to happen by observation. I know that the tide is going in and out, but I'm not causing it. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Yeah. All right. But God and in his infinite wisdom can foreknow things that we can't imagine foreknowing. But there's also this. When I drop this pen like this, did I, I foreknew it. Did I also cause it? Yes, you did. So, so I foreordained it. So on the one hand, you all foreknew it without foreordaining it. I foreknew it and foreordained it. As a matter of fact, it was because I foreordained it that I foreknew it. And, and you see both of these involved in Acts chapter 2 and verse, uh, I believe it's about verse 22, where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, even as you yourselves know. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Now, determinate counsel is like foreordination. God determined it's going to happen. Yeah. And foreknowledge. And if you think about... If you think about just Judas and his role in Jesus being delivered up, did the Lord know that Judas would betray him? Yeah. Didn't he? Did he? Yep. Yeah. John 6 says, the Lord knew from the beginning who would betray him. Yeah, okay. There's foreknowledge. Did he force Judas to betray him? Did he chain, did he take away Judas's free will? No. But he could foreknow what that man would do. Okay. But what the Lord did do was he put him in a position where he could betray Jesus. Who chose Judas to be one of the 12? Jesus. And he did it knowing that Judas would betray him. So he put him in a position where he could, and that doesn't mean he took away his free will, but you see the foreknowledge and the foreordination both at work there. And in so many ways in, in the crucifixion of Jesus, you see God's foreknowledge and foreordination working together. Let's read that verse again. That was Acts chapter 2, the 23rd verse. Yeah. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slay. Yeah, good. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. So, verse 29, remember, he's talked in verse 28 about uh, the those who are called according to God's purpose. God had a purpose in mind. But over in Ephesians chapter 3, after it talks about the Gentiles um, being made fellow, fellow saints and fellow citizens in the house of God with the Jewish believers. 
Paul says this is all according to God's eternal purpose. What's the reference again? Ephesians 3, verse 11. If I remember correctly, I'll check it and make sure that's the right verse. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11. Uh, My pages are sticking together here. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus. God had a purpose, and he's going to save Gentiles as well as Jews, and he's going to do so in one body, in Christ Jesus. And and that's his purpose. Well, you look here at Romans chapter 8, and he's talking about those who are called according to God's purpose. Well, in Ephesians 3, it was God's purpose that this is going to be accomplished in Jesus. Now, we know God's foreknowledge is at work, and we know his foreordination or his predestination is work. He's both choosing in advance, causing things to happen, and knowing things are going to happen. And then it says in verse 29, for whom he foreknew. So God foreknew a people. I know I'm going to have a people, God says. Whom he foreknew, he also foreordained. What did he foreordain? He foreordained them to be conformed to the image of his son. He determined my people are going to be like Jesus. They're going to be made like Jesus. They're going to walk in his footsteps. They're going to be sinless as he is because God is going to be able to take away his sin. And so then it says, whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So it wouldn't just be Jesus, but Jesus would have this whole group of people with him. Them he also called, and whom he called he also justified, and whom he justified then he also glorified. I think the thing that I would emphasize in this passage goes back to that word purpose in verse 28. God had a purpose, and in Jesus Christ he accomplished it. I think when we go down the road of of saying that this means God takes away people's free will and all of that kind of thing, we're missing the point of the passage. That's not what it's about. Here is an interesting thought as well. Whether you take the passage, and we've got a note there in just a minute. Uh, okay. yeah, we'll, get, we'll get to that after we finish. We have a, uh, Cassandra has a question back on resurrection. We'll get to it in, in a few minutes. Uh, let's pursue this a little bit more, and then we're going to come back to the resurrection her question. Um, but on foreordination, um, whether we look at the passage as a corporate foreordination, God knew he would have a people, or some specific uh, individual, and we do have some cases in Scripture where we have God calling a specific individual. Uh, can you think of some instances in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where even before somebody was born, God had a purpose that he called them to? Jacob. And Esau, before they were born. That's the argument Paul makes in Romans 9. Go ahead. About a prophet, one of the prophets, before you were, you know, before you were born, I knew you and I called you and you had a purpose for him. Jeremiah? Jeremiah. About in the New Testament, um, who said these words uh, from Galatians here? Well, I guess that kind of gave away. Yeah, it kind of gives it away. Yeah, Uh, when it was the good pleasure of God who separated me even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, uh, there was a particular purpose that Paul was going to fulfill. Paul, Jesus said, he is a chosen vessel. You know, he's going to do these things. And then, of course, the forerunner of Jesus. 
John the Baptist. John the Baptist. These people were called not just to be disciples uh, and followers of God, but also for some very specific roles. Jeremiah was going to be a prophet to Judah, giving them the bad news they didn't want to hear. Paul was going to be the apostle, uh, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles and kings and, and, and stuff. And John the Baptist was going to be the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Does that mean that they are signed, sealed, delivered, and there's no responsibility upon them? Because Paul himself will later say, even knowing he was a chosen vessel, even knowing that he had been particularly destined from his mother's womb to do this, what did he say at the end of 1 Corinthians 9? I buffet my body daily, lest after I preach to others, I myself should be, I can't remember the last word in that quote. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, rejected or something along that line. Uh, let me turn to it and read it. First Corinthians 9, yeah, I buffet my body and bring it into subjection list by any means. After I preach to others, I myself should be rejected. So here we have a person that was going to do a very specific task, and he's the writer of about half of the books in our New Testament. Um, and God knew that, and God planned to call him to this. That didn't take away his personal responsibility, and he realized he needed to behave lest after fulfilling his role that he'd been called to, he be cast out. It's like God is giving us, through his providence, the circumstances of our lives, that he's setting up the things naturally, and it's up to us then to act within those circumstances, uh, and hopefully it's in agreement with his will or it's not. And, And I keep going, I might have said this more than once, because recently I know I have, or Mordecai told uh, his cousin Esther, could it not be for this reason you were raised up in this position for the king? That's, that's good because, because it talks about the idea of God looking at us and knowing whether we're going to be useful or not and then, and then choosing to put us in positions where he can, and of course he can make useful of the right he can make use of the righteous, and he can make use of the wicked. That's true, yes. too. Yeah, right, right. And that's what, that's what Mordecai said to her just before making that statement. Uh, whether you do this or not, I'm paraphrasing, the job's going to get done. But think what's going to happen to you if you're not part of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if, if, you, don't, if you don't fulfill the role, it, it can be found and done through somebody besides you. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe it'd be good if we get back to, we do have a question from Cassandra talking about what we were talking about a little bit earlier about the resurrection. Yeah. It says, I know that death, I know that death means separation. She says, so was this discussion of resurrection referring to the reversal of death separation from the physical body or death separation from God or both? And there, I think she gets at it. This is what sometimes people miss that Death, death, all death, comprehensively speaking of death, separation from God and separation uh, from the physical body, uh, they kind of go hand in hand. They go together. Now, it's true that uh, somebody, a baby can die even though it has not sinned. But there's physical death in the world because there is sin. Uh, and that was decreed in, in the Garden of Eden. And what God does in Jesus Christ is he overcomes death. 
both comprehensively. You know, both. Yeah. yeah. That, on that, Friday, through his blood, he made the way out of which one? Spiritual death. Yeah. And then on Sunday, in his resurrection, he made the way out of? The physical death. Yeah. So that's exactly, and that's what Paul talks about in Romans, the fifth chapter, how that we've already been reconciled by his death, and we shall be saved by his life, by his resurrected life. But back to Cassandra's question in the text, which of those uh, reunifications were the Corinthians denying? Yeah, they were denying. They were denying that they'd been baptized into Christ and saved. They're denying that there's not going to be a resurrection in the future. Exactly right. They're, they're, exactly. they're instead of following in the word, they're following in, in their philosophies. And so that's the background. Because some of them are saying that, Paul starts off first Corinthians 15. He says, now let me remind you of the gospel that I preached. Just one that you were saved by. And it involved these three core points. This is the beginning of first Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead. Then you have the long list of witnesses. This is not just a mystical thing that nobody saw. People saw it. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to James. He appeared to over 500 brethren at once. He did rise from the dead. So why are you saying that there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's not a resurrection from the dead, then he didn't rise from the dead, and you're still in your sins. Yeah. Then he gets to the point, but because he was risen from the dead, he's the first fruits. And this comes to what verse there, verse 20. Yeah. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that are asleep. And so the, the last enemy, it says Christ is going to reign until all its enemies are under his feet. Going back to Psalm 110. And what does Paul say the last enemy to be conquered will be? Is death in verse 26. Last enemy shall be abolished is death. Then he gets in verse after the kind of references to the philosophy by saying, look, if there wasn't a resurrection, why even go through what we're going through? And why not be like the Epicureans? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then the quote that they might remember uh, learning earlier, evil companions corrupt good, good morals. And then verse 35, he gets to one of their objections. But someone will say, well, how are the dead raised? It's kind of like the Sadducees. What, what kind of question did they pose to oppose resurrection? Oh, about the, the, the husband and the wife? Uh, in the, yeah, in, yeah. In the, in how would that work? Yeah, you know, that if, if you had a resurrection, you'd have, you know, seven widowers and one widow. That couldn't work. <laughs> Jesus responded to that one by, in two ways. That was in Matthew 22. One, he answered their question. Well, they're not going to be married to any of them because there's not going to be marriage there. But then he gets to the real question. It was the Sadducees' view uh, on afterlife. Here, Paul says, someone is going to say, how are the dead raised? With what manner of body would they come? And Paul's answer, somebody sum up Paul's answer. I'm sorry, my mind wandered. What, where did you go just then? Um, responding to this objection type question. But someone's going to say, you know, what manner of body would they have? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so Paul says, you foolish one. 
that which you yourself sow is not quickened except it's dying. And he, go ahead, Jeff. So, so he talks about putting a seed in the ground. You put a seed in the ground. You don't expect just a bunch of little seeds to pop up. What comes up doesn't look <laughs> like exactly the same thing that went in the ground. That'd be um, a little bit disappointed. Yeah. 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 And so this, this, what we're going to end up with in the resurrection, we're going to be raised. And I, I'm, I, I'm inclined to believe we're going to be bodily raised and then changed. Uh, he does talk about those who are left alive being changed at the resurrection. And we don't know what that's going to be like, though. We're going to end up with a, as Paul argues in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a new body, a new house from heaven, and it's going to be suited for the heavenly realm. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So we're not going to have this corruptible body in eternity. But I take it this body is going to be raised and changed and will end up with a, a glorified body um, for a heavenly realm. But it's this question of Cassandra's, it kind of gets to what my concern is and that a lot of people just kind of think of resurrection in the sense of <coughs> being made right with God. That's huge but he's also going to overcome death for us. I don't, I don't believe that it's body will be raised just like this flesh and blood. And then it will be changed. Let's read the text through. And is, this body's going to be raised, changed and the dead who are, I mean the, the living people who are still alive will also be changed. Let's just read through the text here and then we'll comment on it. All right. Verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? <laughs> do they come? You foolish one, that which you shall sow is not quick and accept it die. By the way, if we're going to be in this passage for a few minutes. First <laughs> Corinthians 15, now reading verse 37. That which you sow, you don't sow the body that will be, but a bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other kind. God gives it a body, even if it pleases him to each seed a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. And then he talks about the different flesh of men, of beasts, of uh, sun and stars, etc. different stars. Verse 42, so also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in what? Uh, it, I'm Verse sorry. 42. Where are you? Verse 42. Yes. Okay. It's sown in corruption. It's sown in corruption. So the thing that gets buried, neither of us uh, three, uh, nor Noah, even though he's younger, are going to be buried in perfect health. I realize at my age and, and as we get older, we realize more, we're all kind of dying on the installment plan. Okay, yeah. a lot of follicles have already bitten the dust. There's more <laughs> that's going to be falling apart. Yeah. And it, you get to a certain point of decay, and it's sown in corruption. But it's not going to be raised in corruption. It's going to be raised in... Incorruption. Incorruption. Paul doesn't tell you exactly what it's going to be like. He says, yeah, you're going to have to wait and see. Yeah. So, so here's the distinction that, that you're working on. It, it, the question you're working on is... Simply this, when we are raised from the dead, do we come forth instantly in the glorified body or do we come forth in this body in which we're buried, which then is instantly changed? And, and you're, you're making the point from this text here 
that it's the former, that what goes into the ground is not what comes up. And that it's, it's going to be raised a spiritual body. It's, it's buried. So, so there, in 2 Corinthians 5, Saul, Paul says we don't want to be left naked with, without a body. He says yeah. we've got one coming. Uh, and that, again, is in contrary to the Platonic theory. But let's keep reading. Just keep reading through the text here. All right. Verse, uh, verse 42. So also it is, so in answer to the question, how are the dead raised? To an extent, you need to wait and see what comes up. But he says these basic principles. It is sown in corruption, verse 42, but it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Mm -hmm. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Howbeit, that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Then that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is of heaven. As is the earth, such are they that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Mm-hmm. Now to the question, what about the... Uh, uh, Those who are still alive when he comes. Yeah. But first he said, now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Yeah. There's a change that goes on going from corruption to incorruptible. There's a change going on, going from dishonor to glory. There's a change going on from a bare, dead body being buried to a raised person coming to life. And while that change is there, there's also a change for those that are still alive. Verse 51, behold, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment at the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens, it's what Paul said in Second Corinthians 5, we know if the earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For truly in this we groan, longing to be clothed upon with our habitation, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. All right. So go back to verse 52. Sure. So this, the, the, what you're saying here, um, I think this is the, well, let me just read it. Last half of verse 52. For the trumpet shall be sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we, the dead and we, he, he's making a distinction there. You can read this. He's exactly. making a distinction. There are those who are dead when the Lord comes, and there are those who are still alive. Exactly. So of the dead, they shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, so that they all end up in the same condition right. in this glorified state. I get that. And that, that, that phrase right there certainly seems to paint a picture. And it, it may seem like a minor point, but here's the, here's the thing that – that, that I think about. Jesus was raised bodily. Yes. Not, not just as a kind of a phantom. In fact, they, they thought they were seeing a ghost, but he was right. there bodily. Right. 
Now go back first Corinthians 15. We're going to run out of time to, to, to pursue all this, but maybe you can make a quick comment here. Go back to verse 45. The last phrase in verse 45. You're still in first Corinthians 15. Yes. First Corinthians 15, verse 45. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. Right. All right. Talk, talk about that. You've got no seconds. We're out of time. We're at the end of the broadcast. First of all, who is the last Adam? It's Jesus. That's right. Jesus. I, I'll just mention this, and then maybe we'll pick it up next time. The Jehovah's Witnesses make a big deal about this verse because they don't believe Jesus ever rose from the dead physically. Right. They'll use this verse to try to make that claim. Well, all you got to do is read Luke 24 to see the nonsense of that. So you say, look, you know, so he's raised physically. They'll go to verse 51, 50 here, and they say, but flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus was raised in that body that still had nail holes on the day that he rose from the dead. At right. the end of the 40 days, he ascended to heaven, and I would assume that's when he would have been changed. And would you say that's when he became a life-giving spirit? Uh, Paul might be talking about the whole thing, but he might be more focused on that. Well, we, you, we'll talk about that sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're at the right. webcast today. I think what we want everybody to get out of this is that there is a resurrection. Yes. And, um, and that's going to take place when the Lord comes at the end of time. Absolutely. I put up the sharing screen if anybody wants to contact us. Uh, we have our phone numbers there. We have our email addresses there. I'll leave it up there for a minute as we're closing out. I really thank you guys, both of you, to, to embellish further on, on these two verses uh, that I was that we brought into in the beginning of the show. And I, I just want to, well, you can make a closing comment too, but I don't see Lori's comment when I went to share my screen. I lost that, but it was something about, I guess the bottom line is it's good, but we're going to be surprised. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much for your input today. And everyone in the audience, thank you for your comments. We had a few coming in. We want you to continue asking. Thank you. Have a good week. See you next time. Okay, dope.